Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China starting from 1839 and the Opium Wars and going forward to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and farewell letter to that country. Uh, as always, if you'd like to support the podcast, please rate and review on all platforms, share with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast if you'd like to support monetarily. You can join the Substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. And if you'd like to give me ideas for what to actually put in the Substack, please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Uh, today, uh, we're talking about... Oh yes, uh, this is our first episode back after the break. I've gotten a better idea for how to just close out the Taiping Rebellion. So we'll have coming up the Chinese story of the defeat of the Taiping rebels. We'll have the story of the foreign intervention, how this hollows out the Qing regime, how this further puts uh, into Chinese hands the possible stuff to you know, do its own revolutionary changes later. Uh, we did two episodes looking at foreign visitors to the Taiping, and in this episode, we will continue a bit looking at the Taiping. Uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, we're following the book Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. Um, at this point, we're describing in history the Taiping are still doing fairly well, uh, early 1860s. They're holding rich, productive areas of China. You know the Chinese company Alibaba, the equivalent of Amazon or something? They, their headquarters is in Hangzhou, in a Taiping-held area. Like, that has always been a rich, productive area of China. The Taiping armies were huge, and the Qing were not perceptibly able to put down the rebellion. There was lots of material for Taiping propaganda to work with, as to the Qing being on the way out, the mandate of heaven passing to some other worthy dynasty, the Manchus being foreign oppressors, that sort of thing. You know, when the foreign armies stormed Beijing, the emperor fled. Yeah, there's major propaganda material there. You know, like... like um. Yeah, when, when foreign armies storm your capital, burn one of your palaces, that's that that just doesn't help. The Taiping uh, were an, they offered themselves as an alternative to the Qing, but they were an extremely mixed bag. The main armies were fairly well disciplined, and so when discipline was enforced, uh, swift and harsh punishments came down for infractions of military discipline, but the uh, followers before and after the armies 
They were horrible looters, plunderers, rapists, and murderers. Many locals would commit suicide in advance of Taiping armies coming in. When small groups of Taiping soldiers came in, they'd pay for the food they ate, but they also went about in fear of being murdered in the dark if they weren't wary. So it was... But then evidently... When the Taiping were in control, they did institute order, but then local fa local elites were a faction in play. Whichever force was coming in, they had local knowledge, local resources. They might be bought off to gain their acquiescence. They might have sympathies one way or another. They might be given tax collection rights in exchange for what you know the the Qing or the Taiping not having to control that area when the Taiping would come in the there was a redistribution of local power you'd have former Qing officials uh, promising loyalty to the Taiping and they could be appointed to some position educated people could be absorbed by the Taiping administration and uh, because it's a revolutionary administration in need of whatever talent they could get, people from all sorts of backgrounds could find employment. You know, farmers, secretaries, tradesmen, weavers, monks, peddlers. If you had some sort of talent, uh, they it wasn't like the, the Qing having to guard uh, the status quo. The Taiping needed whoever they could find who would be loyal to their uh, cause. Um, the, the, the main appeal was bringing order. Locals didn't have deep political sympathies. Uh, if somebody could establish order, uh, locals wanted life to work. They wanted to get on with business as usual, to end disorder. Kind of a modern spin on this question I think there would totally be banditry and warlordism in China again if the Communist Party of China went under. I think things would break up along existing lines of patronage, um, mentor-mentee relationships in the current power structures, current army units, current police groups. Um, if you could... You know, so one question is, if you could do away with the Communist Party of China, with what would you replace it? That whatever else, they keep order in China. So, so whoever's going to win, Qing or Taiping, just give me some order, okay? Give me some law and order, make things work. Hongrengan, the uh, foreign educated, uh, educated in Hong Kong, a cousin of the leader and founder of the Taiping Rebellion, he was working on designing a new government to replace the Qing and uh, traditional Chinese institutions. It was kind of a compromise between Taiping ideology and pragmatic solutions. He patterned his government on existing Qing organizations of government. Um, the uh, the Manchus basically copied the Ming dynasty before them. The the Qing copied the Ming. Um, the 
stability of continuity with previous order and way of doing things, it was really important for dynastic succession. He worked on creating a new examination system. The old examination system was a useful way to select loyal and qualified officials, but the ideology needed to line up with the Taiping religion. So the first version was based on the Bible. It was much less brutally competitive than the old exams. In uh, the book Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, half of the Taiping uh, it says that half of the Taiping exam takers might pass, whereas like one in a hundred might pass the Qing exam. Uh, the exam content evolved over time. In 1861, it started to include more material from the Chinese classics as opposed to being just Bible-based. Uh, Hong Rengan led the writing and printing of Taiping propaganda, and this substantially included secular materials on modernization and development, railroads, modern weapons, steamships, the telegraph, the national newspaper. Uh, the printing assistants were some of the most highly educated men in Nanjing under Taiping control, but they were not really the most true believer Taiping followers. Uh, one confided to a visitor that he didn't believe in the heavenly king's visions. Late stage Taiping propaganda really leaned into the you know, secular side of things, um, especially a message of race-based conflict, not so much the religious message. So there's an account given of a tract uh, on a real or imagined conversation with a defector from the Qing to the Taiping, and he held high positions in the Taiping government. No, sorry. Um, he, he held high positions in the Qing government, but he felt loyal to China itself, and so he joined the Chinese, not the Manchu side. Um, he, he and his family were slaves in their own country, the tract says. And so in this, the Taiping were continuing traditional Chinese themes of resistance to foreign occupation. Um, that, you know, this is something that Stephen Platt goes over in Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, that great scholars only emerge during Chinese dynasties, this tract says. That there's kind of a reinterpretation of Confucius when he's readopted into the Taiping ideology, and so that they emphasize that they're against false worship, not against Confucian philosophy itself. Um, much of the propaganda targets the local elites. Um, so their local elites are the kinds of people who, they'll have some education, like they'll read poetry, they'll write poetry, ideological argument would have been important for persuading them. Zhang Guofan, the, uh, the loyal Qing official uh, who's trying to come up with an army from 
support networks outside of traditional army recruitment under the Qing dynasty. He relied on local elites for support as well, so it was another angle of attack in uh, contending with uh, forces loyal to the Qing dynasty in trying to win the war for the Taiping. And part of Zheng Guofan's mode of operations meant that he had to get his own supplies and recruits and not just stand by to receive from central logistical networks. So even where, as time went on, he uh, he achieved more formal uh, government positions, uh, he still needed to rely on his own resources to build the army to defeat the Taiping. Um, Hong Rangan kind of had a, had a critical weakness with his difficulties with the Taiping old guard. According to Ottoman the Heavenly Kingdom, Hong Rangan blamed them for not looking out for the future. They were concerned with their own status. It's a, it's a serious organizational culture issue, giving talented subordinates possibilities to rise, possibilities to win greater responsibilities and prestige. Um, so if the if the Taiping force that had dazzled China with its lightning move from the southwest to deepen the Chinese heartland, taking Nanjing, a former dynastic capital, um, well, you, you have these guys who had been there from the beginning, the... Uh, kind of bandit force, the guerrilla force. Um, but if you can't make way, if you can't make a space for somebody with uh, modern ideas or flexible thinking, it could doom your organization, just organizational culture-wise. Um, you know, some... Other historical organizations, like, say, the Catholic Church, through uh, history, like the selling of offices was a way uh, that popes would raise money, uh, rich people would buy positions and status, and even income, so it was like an investment for them, but it was a way to raise money for the pope. Well, it, when that extended to buying... Uh, bishop positions, well, this keeps people who actually want to be Catholics from rising to high positions. It uh, paves the way for people like the Borgias or the Medici to put one of their people on the papal throne. Okay, in uh, pre-revolutionary France, there was this nobility of the robe. Rich people could buy their way into the nobility, and they resisted reforms because they regarded the positions they purchased as their property. In North Korea, the old men who had been companions of Kim Il-sung in the guerrilla days, fighting Japan in World War II, they were an elite class in North Korea. Periodic purges, touches... It, touch even these guys. Um, one organization that successfully 
dealt with this sort of organizational inertia. Uh, older admirals, um, previously crowded out more talented, younger, more energetic admirals. Well, um, a naval reformer created the yellow flag. Uh, it was an appointment for older admirals to kind of retire to, that they'd be given a, a sort of posting respecting their prestige. But it freed up active roles in the fleet for younger admirals. That that's something that, so this is something that the Taiping are going to have to, to sort through, and of course they don't. Uh, they're going to be defeated. Well, okay, somebody like Hong Ren Gan, who's seen the wider world, he's, he's seen modern technology, he's learned about modern European uh, and American structures of government and education and things. Well, they didn't... They didn't figure out how to have people who were competent in these things in charge of those things the problem of whether you had the street cred of being there in the war from the beginning that was not something they were going to be able to get past but then uh, when you have the the when you have something like the problem of the Qing dynasty continuing to exist. This is another thing that uh, the the Taiping will have to contend with. Because they had been the real dynasty for some centuries, because they still existed, that was a significant asset for their legitimacy. After the end of a Chinese dynasty, there are still loyalists who fight on. Even a powerless emperor is a useful political football worth fighting over in the novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms, a pivotal turning point. Well, turning points are pivotal, that's what they are. When the Han Emperor becomes kind of the uh, uh, the ward, the uh, you know, person protected by the warlord Cao Cao, uh, he's no longer exercising power in his own right, but still he's the legitimate emperor. So the Taiping, no, the Qing, because they still exist, because they have not been defeated, that's something that's going to stick in the throats of the Taiping. And then remember Zhang Guofan? Uh, he was the official tasked with somehow raising an army, somehow getting military talent together to defend Hunan, uh, and uh, contribute to the defeat of the Taiping through a lot of opposition. He eventually was appointed governor and military commander in the areas affected by the Taiping Rebellion. Where we last left him, he had a small force besieging the strategic city of Anqing, a choke point on the Yangtze River, um, a uh, point that... Uh, resupply to the Taiping capital of Nanjing would have to flow past. Loss of command of the Yangtze River would threaten the Taiping ability to build an empire in the heartland areas of China from which they could move north against the Qing from a firmer strategic foundation. This siege of Anqing was severely crimping the Taiping ability to move forward with strategic moves. 
Allegedly, hundreds of thousands of new recruits were waiting to be picked up in Hubei and Hunan. Um, offens- offensives at various prom- in various promising directions uh, were had to be redirected to relieve the siege of Nanjing. Hong Rengan himself, without any battlefield experience, is sent at the head of an army in 1861 to do something about the siege. So we're getting back into uh, pushing on toward the end of the Taiping Rebellion. So uh, from th- from a military strategy standpoint, I'd fault the Taiping for trying too hard to establish a state when they had not yet defeated the Qing. Um, what if they had waited until they had defeated the Qing in the capital, Beijing, and then took Beijing as their capital? Before I've characterized the Taiping movement as a weird little Chinese cult that grew into a thing leading to the deaths of millions upon millions. China's experienced religious change before, you know, the arrival of Buddhism, Confucianism versus Taoism, perhaps there'd be some tension between the secular oriented political philosophy versus the like adherence to more straightforward uh, spiritual uh, disciplines and traditions. The arrival of Islam at some point, Nestorian Christianity came in. Well, China and the the ruling dynasty needed to sort out how that was all going to go. The the Taiping... I think they were too eccentric of a millenarian cult, like end-of-the-world type cult, that there was nothing to believe in the current world for, that they were, they were, they were the kind of thing that comes up near the end of a dynasty, but they weren't they there was some solidity lacking that further that revolutions that we'll cover later on will have that they were able to address the modern world and not talk as though it was ending because the dynasty had to be replaced okay thank you for coming along for this episode um, if you'd like to support the podcast, please rate and review on all platforms. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com if you'd like to join the substack. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for coming along, and I've been your host, Nathan Bennett. <laughs>